0: For me, success was just hearing my record on the radio. Now, when we get to the money part, success was having a Mercedes Benz, having some gold chains on my neck, having fresh sneakers on my feet. It was really simple because you're talking about a 16-year-old. Back then, it was really just about being able to buy the clothes you want, the car you want, and go and eat where you want. It was pretty basic. I wasn't yet at that level of thinking about sophisticated investment strategies and (laughs) <laughs> so funny, I had a friend who used to always talk to me about, oh man, you should just get a nice Magellan fund, right? Like, <laughs> like He was like the one guy in the neighborhood who was like kind of smart. And I used to be looking at him like a deer in the headlights, like, yo, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. Hello,
1: ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I am happy that you're here. I'm happy to share with you this special encore episode of Crazy Money. This is is a conversation with LL Cool J, the hip-hop pioneer and legend who came on for our 100th episode of Crazy Money. Hey, auspicious occasions demand auspicious guests, and I've got one for you here. LL, who has had such an extraordinary career since 1984, when at the age of 17, he burst onto the music scene and has not gone anywhere since. He's been at the top of the game as a producer, actor, musician, and entrepreneur for, what is that, 38 years now? But who's counting? We were all young back then. We're a little less young now. But this guy has become such a fixture in the culture that it's hard to remember a time when he wasn't around. He's got two Grammys. He's the first ever hip-hop honoree by the Kennedy Center. He's got 14 studio albums with massive hits, including songs like Going Back to Cali, Mama Said Knock You Out, Rock the Bells, and many, many more. You know him from NCIS as Sam Hanna, and he's appeared in all kinds of films like Into Deep, Any Given Sunday, and Wildcats. In this special conversation, he shares what he really wanted from life and from music when he released that first album. He talks about how he approaches potential business deals and why he pours his soul into Rock the Bells, the company that elevates timeless and classic hip hop culture by celebrating MCs, DJs, breakdancers, and graffiti artists. I can't disguise my enthusiasm for this conversation because I just think the guy's combination of drive, work ethic, fearlessness, and curiosity are world-class and extraordinary. And I know you'll enjoy this conversation
0: with LL Cool J.
1: LL Cool J, welcome to Crazy Money.
0: What's up, what's up? What's going on? How you doing, man?
1: I'm doing fantastic, and I appreciate you being here. We're about the same age. Let's go back to 1984. I'm 15 years old. I'm wearing braces and getting my butt kicked at freshman football practice. I can barely even look girls in the eye at this point. I know I want to, but I can't quite do it. What's going on in your life that year?
0: Oh, 84. Well, 84 was a year when I put my first single out. So during the early part of 84, I was just really working on trying to get a deal and trying to make that happen. By mid-84, somewhere along there, I had ended up linking up with Rick Rubin. I was sending demos out everywhere during that time. and. Ad-Rock from the BC Boys heard my demo. He played it for Rick Rubin, and they thought it was good. So Rick gave me a call. I ended up getting with Rick, and, uh, you know, the rest is history, man. The label Def Jam was formed. He had a production company already. That's how I knew to send him a demo. They had a single on the Party Time label called It's Yours. I copied down that address, and that number sent the tape in, and here we are.
1: What kind of a 16-year-old has the gumption to think that he can make a living as a musician?
0: You know, it's funny, man. To be quite honest, like, you know, I was always ambitious and I always wanted to live well on some level. And I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. But the goal wasn't just money. You know, the goal was really for my voice to be heard. And for me not to be just another invisible guy, you know, living in Queens. And, you know, I had a, a mother who always told me I could do anything. I put my mind to. You. I had a grandmother who reinforced those same values. And so I had no fear. And, you know, I've always been fearless about going after my dreams and at the end of the day, man, it's better to just go after your dreams. If they come true, great. And if they don't, at least you ain't taking them to the grave with you. You did your best. So that's what I did. You know what I'm saying? I just went all out.
1: So I read a quote from you that says, the only thing that keeps you from your dreams is fear. Were you afraid of anything when you were 16 years old?
0: Yeah, I was afraid of not going after my dreams.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: You know what I mean? I was afraid of just kind of Like I said, just being invisible, just being in that world of like, you know, gunshots, stick-up kids, drug dealers, and nothing else. Cutting school, smoking weed, and just wasting your life away. As my grandmother would say, rocking your life away, sitting in a chair, you know? Like, that's what I didn't want to be. I just didn't want to be that guy. Like, I felt like there had to be more to life than that. And obviously, in in this country, that's like, you're starting in the negative, right? So we got to climb out of that We got to get to an even playing field. We got to commence the race. So it was kind of like, you know, you're already being lapped in life. You know what I'm saying? So you got to just, you just got to go get it.
1: But you know, you can do that if you go get a degree in accounting. That's one way to achieve financial autonomy and independence as a young person in America. But you back then said, I'm going to go all in, all out. In your wildest dreams, what would you have described as success looking like when you were that age?
0: Let me just say this. You know, I think about the accounting thing. The reality is, is that autonomy? It can be if you start your own firm. It may not be if you choose to work for somebody and you just end up in a cubicle. Right. So it all depends. Or now just working remotely in your house the rest of your life or some guy's organization counting his money. It's not necessarily the kind of autonomy I was looking for. Right. I know what you mean, though. I know exactly what you mean. Just kind of be safe. Go to (laughs) work. I know what you're saying, yeah. so, and I understand that.
1: In your wildest dreams when you know, you're 15, yeah. 16 years old, before you get your deal, what would you think? Like, okay, that is success. You know, 10 years later, you know, was it a million dollars? Was
0: it? No. For me, success was just hearing my record on the radio. Now, when we get to the money part, success was having a Mercedes Benz, having some gold chains on my neck, having fresh sneakers on my feet. In those days, a new VCR. Today would probably be an iPhone and a laptop. You know, just having a new Mac and a new phone. And it was really simple because you're talking about a 16-year-old. Right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So I got my first advance. I bought my mother a car. Right. And I just got myself some jewelry and some some trinkets, sneakers and stuff like that. When I got a little bit more money, I bought my mother a house and just stayed in the basement. Then I bought myself a car. So I've always kind of looked out for my mom, but success was just back then. It was really just about being able to buy the clothes you want, the car you want and go and eat where you want. It was pretty basic. I wasn't yet at that level of thinking about sophisticated investment strategies and like I had a friend who used to, (laughs) so funny, I had a friend who used to always talk to me about, oh man, you should just get a nice Magellan fund, right? Like like, he was like the one guy in the neighborhood who was like kind of smart. And I used to be looking at him like a deer in the headlights, like, yo dude, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) All I know is I'm getting a car and I'm putting these chains on my neck. You talking to me about a Magellan fund? That meant nothing to me. He might as well have been speaking like some obscure dialect in Scandinavia somewhere. Like I knew nothing about what he was saying. You know, as you grow and as you learn and as you stay curious, you realize that there are different moves that you can make and different things that can happen. But you also, quite frankly, have to be blessed enough or lucky enough, depending on how you see the world, to get enough bites at the apple to actually do the right thing. Especially if you're not coming from a family environment where people are accustomed to having some money, accustomed to making sophisticated investment decisions. Did
1: you make big mistakes with money when you first started making some?
0: Not really. No massive blunders. I mean, you know, I overspent a little bit and, you know, had to play catch up and I was on extension and I played a little bit of that game, the extension game, but nothing really, really crazy. I never lived above my means. I never bought like more house than I needed. I probably bought a few more cars than I needed, but that wasn't (laughs) catastrophic you know what I mean? In right. terms of the actual raw numbers that I was spending. So I did all right.
1: What was harder to handle, the money or the attention as a 16, 18, 19-year-old when you've got platinum records, you're on TV all the time? How'd you deal with all that?
0: You no, know, that's an interesting question. I would say um, the money is probably a little bit harder to deal with because a certain amount of money is easy to deal with, right? But when you get to, when you get to that point where you have like, gold digging receptionist calling you up saying, hey, don't tell anybody, but if you're really good, you can get a Rolls Royce. And you're looking at the phone like, why would I want a Rolls Royce? Like, (laughs) you don't know that you're not old enough yet to understand that this 30 something year old is like seeing you as a big fish, you know what I mean? Like, so the money is probably a little tougher In that instance, the attention can be really tough depending on what your family and life and your home life is like, right? You know, but all money and the fame is gonna do is is show people more of who you are, right? Like, it's the biggest exclamation mark in the world. It puts you on front page, center stage of your universe and people get to see your character. So for me, the money generosity wasn't an issue. I never really been the selfish kind of guy. So I never wore the money on my sleeve even to this day. You know what I'm saying? I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. But that's not what walks in the room before me. Like, it's kind of like I let my spirit and my character lead. You know, my mother would tell me, you know, Todd, you know, girls don't like dummies and she'd tell me, <laughs> you know, drugs ruin careers. You know, my mother was like a psychologist, you know, and I'm still 16, 17. So I'm listening. And I happen to be a kid that really listened to their parents. Like I really actually listened to my mother and my grandmother and them for, the, for the most part. I like actually listen. So I'd be like, oh, okay. I hear you. You know, and I just have that. And then you bump into good people along the way, like members of, of hip hop groups who are a little older, who might have been involved in some things and like said, nah, L, this ain't for you. And they would kind of put their hand out and give me the Heisman Trophy pose at those moments when I wanted to indulge. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? So that's part of it. I got to give them credit too.
1: So that was where I was going to go with the next question. As I was reading up on your background and reminding myself of all the records you put out, I'm looking at the early days of Def Jam and I'm learning about artists who released one or two records and were never heard from again. Was that yeah. wisdom and groundedness, what kept you in the game all those years?
0: I got to tell you, you know, Russell used to tell me, um, he used to have this statement, like when I make a big mistake, like a couple of times I missed video shoots and was out on, you like, <laughs> know, hanging out.
1: It happens. Like, you know,
0: and, and he'd be like, it's your career. And there was something about it's your career that really had a lot of gravity with me because I realized that this was an opportunity. And the more I did it, the more gravity it had. Like I used to ride by the high school at the beginning of my career and say, Oh, I can still go back and be driving. And then, oh, I can still go back. And then one year I was like, yo, I'm actually too old to be in there now. Focus. <laughs> 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 you right, know what I'm right. So it's like. I just learned that if you're going to have a career. You got to care about it, man. You got to care about it. And you got to be hungry and you got to be ambitious and you got to continue to dream. You have to continue to dream. You have to continue to dream. And you got to be trustworthy. and You got to be able to trust yourself. But the one thing that I also never did was I didn't approach the world of business in a Machiavellian way. Sometimes that's the safest space to be in. Because, you know, a lot of times the schemas just end up overthinking themselves and they end up just self-destructing anyway. You know what I'm saying? It's like Machiavelli, that, that whole style of thinking is like a recipe for disaster long term. You've never seen anyone who wins at it long term ever. They always end up self-destructing. It's just like a it's like a Roman candle. So just being trustworthy and trying to do right by people kind of works. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that you got to be an idiot. I've done bad deals. I've done things that I wish I did better deals. So I'm not saying that, I'm not saying be foolish and just give away the store. I'm saying, but as you're doing business, you can have some character. And if you say you're going to do something, do it. And if you're not going to do it, don't agree to it. And I still move like that. And see, I can move like that if I'm hanging out with my billionaire friends. I could do that with my VC friends. I could do that with dudes right in the hood. I'm the same guy, no matter who I'm talking to. So I think that's important, too. And I learned that, you know, coming up as a young kid, just being around hustlers because people. This is a crazy money podcast. So, you know, people that watch this podcast understand VCs, they understand angel investors, they understand scaling businesses, they understand a lot of sophisticated topics. But one thing about the street, you need integrity. Right. And if you give somebody your word. You keep it. And guess what? That idea, that principle, travels through all levels, at all levels in any room. I don't care what room you walk in. I don't care if we're talking about putting four hundred million in, fifty million, or fifty thousand, or five hundred. Keeping your word is part of it. So that's what I've tried to do along the way. Especially, you know, when you think about all the opportunities that you have to white people out, and I just try to do right by people, give them their credit, give them their publishing. And then you can do tough deals. You can make strong deals. You should make deals that that are win-win, but they should really be win-win.
1: Meaning you want people that you do business with to want to come back and do business with you again, not just because you're LL Cool J, but because it was a good deal and it was a life-affirming way to work with good people and produce a good result.
0: 100%. And I think, you know, look, I can get in a lot of rooms with the name, but the character is what's going to keep you there. And it's results, which is going to solidify those relationships and allow you to keep going and moving forward. You know, I can get a lot of meetings, but what does that mean? It's like I want to deliver. I don't walk around the world of finance trying to talk people out of money. If I do business with someone, I'm doing it with them because I want us both to win. You know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to get from house to house or from car to car based on grifting and playing games. No, but a lot of people, you know, a lot of times people do live in that space. I'm trying to actually deliver. My goal is to deliver for the people that I do business with. So that's part of it. And you got to have, I think, a higher purpose than just money. Like there's nothing wrong with crazy money, but crazy money comes after crazy success. Mm. We know LeBron is wealthy now. We know Jordan is wealthy now, but how many jump shots did they take in the driveway? And how hard did they work in high school? And how hard did they work in the gym? So the crazy money, crazy success is the precursor, a crazy money, especially if you wanted to have it long-term. You don't just skip and go right to the Super Bowl trophy. You know, like Tom Brady, You know he's talking about pliability and keeping his body right and staying right. Then we get to the money, right? So I kind of look at things in that space as well.
1: Yeah, Brady eats better and stretches more than me, so I can't worry about all the Super Bowls. <laughs> Trophies I don't have in my house, right? I mean, th- that's
0: exactly. Somebody wrote a quote today. It was great. It said, "Don't complain about the things you didn't have because of the work you didn't do." <laughs>
1: right, right. I'd say it's like one percent God's fault for not giving me His arm, and then like ninety nine percent my fault for you know eating Twinkies for most of my life. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. you go. Did you have a sense of how amazing the opportunity you had was, and did that help you manage? the trajectory you're on to do the right things in the business of music and the business of film and TV at the right times? Did you have a sense of where you wanted to go and which were the steps to take at those respective times?
0: I think the real answer is that yes, with an asterisk. Yes, meaning it wasn't so much a product of education as it was just instinct. Instinct can take you a long way. I don't care how smart and how great you are as a hunter you can wrap circles around me as a hunter. But if my instincts tell me that I shouldn't go over that hill and I don't, and you do and a bear eat you, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> like, like, So I think Napoleon Bonaparte had a great quote. He said he'll take a lucky general over a talented one any day. Right. And so having the courage to follow your instincts, I think it's very, very important, especially when we talk about this area, right? Because, Finance is an area where people have a tendency to be hyper conservative or just like all out crazy, super risk it all, right? Like, but a lot of times it's a really cerebral process or they're kind of risking it. But a lot of times people are not necessarily following their instinct and their intuition as I was going throughout my career. So I'll give you an example of an instinctual decision that turned out to be a great business decision. I'm sitting with a guy and um, we're talking about me recording a new album. A part of this new album is they're going to give me an advance would be a nice sum of money to begin the process and to kind of get rolling and they open up your budget. I put money in my pocket. It's a great moment. Like artists love. It, right. At that time, it was a sizable amount for me at that time. And so when I asked him about, yeah, well, you know, I'd like to get an advance, get rolling. He starts doing this, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm sitting there and, I, and something told me right at that moment, I said, oh, I see how this is. My very next phone call, I'm on the phone with Quincy Jones. talking about am yo, yo, what's up with some TV? Like, because he had kind of been bridging the idea, broaching the idea to me. Let's do some TV. So me, Quincy Jones, David Salvin, recipe, we out there and we end up with a TV show in the house because instinctually, I knew that I was about to be a prisoner of this industry and a prisoner of this exec in his mind, his whims. I'd be at his whim because of the way he kind of. So that's an instinctual decision, right? But it ended up being a good thing because now many years later, when I look at the passive part of my income, not the aggressive, but the passive part of my income, a lot of it is because of those decisions.
1: Well, you said something earlier that I think speaks deeply to the orientation you had. You said you weren't interested so much about the money that you could get from a record when you were a teenager. You wanted your voice to be heard. Those are very different things. And my theory, working on becoming a working stand-up comedian for eight years of my life, the theory that if anybody's in the arts to try to make money, they're in it for completely the wrong reasons. If you're not in it for the idea that you can express whatever is inside you, then you're going to quit so much earlier than the money ever has a chance to show up that you might as well just not even start right? So your instinct that you're in it to express yourself is very different than I'm in it for the bling, I'm in it for the benzes and all that kind of stuff. And that's a long-term attitude. And the same could be said for business. If somebody's in it to get the short-term buck, they're going to do things that will make other people on the other side of the deal never want to do business with them again.
0: 100%. And obviously there are some ways you can distinguish it, but be clear. Like I have absolutely been doing business since 1984. A lot of times people... Because you're an artist, they think, okay, well, you've been an artist since 1984 and maybe in some cases. But any artist that has longevity, that's been doing it a long time, you're doing business and you have to make the same type of decisions that anybody would make, whether it's staffing, personnel, hiring the right people with the right domain expertise in the right areas of the business. It's business, right? Tour decisions, promoter decisions. Are you pricing yourself out of the market? Are you selling yourself short? I mean, there there are no differences, right? When when a mistake happens, you have to pivot, you have to adjust. But the thing is, you're right. It wasn't because I wanted to be looked at as some cool businessman. As a matter of fact, I've talked about this much less than some of my counterparts. The business part of LL Cool J is not really something that people are really really aware of like that. They kind of just take me as a famous guy, not for granted, but kind of that's LL and that's what he does. And he's kind of here. I don't think they necessarily see the decision-making process and what it has taken for me to go from 1984 to 2021 and be at either a greater height in different mediums and kind of just what that entails. So it is business, right? But you're right. you got to be passionate about it. You got to care about it. Like I started my company, Rock the Bells. I'm passionate about it, but I'm doing it for my love of the culture and my love for for all of these other artists that put their time and their talents into this culture and what we built, right? Because I don't want three, 400 years from now for guys to be forgotten. I don't want people to look at this as some kind of fly by night thing that came and went. And the only people that are remember are like five guys that were really, really popular at the height of the internet and everybody else is forgotten because it's all about timing, right? It's not only what you did, it's when you do it and who witnessed it and how it was kind of chronicled and kind of framed and boxed for the world. So I think that Rock the Bells and, and dealing with classic hip hop, dealing with this timeless culture, that's something that I can do that I'm really passionate about and I'm finding out ways to do it.
1: So Rock the Bells is your website that includes content about art, culture, hip hop, black literature. Commerce, it's a beautifully curated fashion site. Is that the culmination of all the things you care about brought to one place? I mean, besides your family and and that kind of stuff.
0: It's content, commerce, and experiences, right? The site is a home, but we extend beyond that, right? It's not just about a site. It really is a, a direct to consumer company that really focuses on hip hop culture. And we are tapped into the biggest and most important classic hip hop artists in the world. And they all are very supportive of what we're doing. I've given some equity in the company. I've given, you know, Run DMC equity. I've given so Pepper have equity. Eminem has equity. Sad Bob Freddie, Freddy, who took hip hop from uptown, downtown, has equity. Jonathan Mannion, the photographer, Roxanne Shante, Big Daddy Kane has equity. I mean, this is a really, really important company for many reasons. And it's a channel on Sirius XM, channel 43. But the thing that I think is just important is that hip-hop, you know, has fans. It has customers. It has people that love it. There are people who really, really, really enjoy and love what we do. And they deserve to be served like any other fan or customer and treated with that same respect. If I can see Paul McCartney on the cover of a magazine with Taylor Swift, why can't I see Ice Cube on the cover of a magazine with Meg De I want this culture to be treated correctly. So that's why I do it. And that's why I'm passionate about it. And then we do that in different ways, right? Through content touching that audience through commerce, whether it be, you know, fashion products, through experiences, right now virtual, but once in the post-COVID world, those experiences will be in real life. So, you know, we rock it.
1: You talk about wanting to make the culture respected at the level among the broader world. In 2017, you became the first hip-hop artist to receive a Kennedy Center Award. What did that mean to you?
0: I mean, it was incredible. It's an amazing accomplishment, you know, because Kennedy Center honors are rarefied air the biggest and most important artists in America get that award and it's just that honor and there's just no way around that. The beauty for me was not so much that it was me although I'm really happy it was me but it was being able to walk in the door like all of my fellow hip hop artists that, you know, I came up with. I'm thinking about G Rap. You know, I'm thinking about the Fat Boys, you know, Rest in Peace, Prince Marky D and Buff. I'm thinking about them, like Cool Rock Ski. And then, you know, even my, you know, rivals, Kumo D, Cannabis. And I'm thinking about all those guys, because when I get in there, that takes everybody in there. So it was an amazing it was an amazing feeling.
1: Man. In what ways besides Rock the Bells, you know, now you're on top. You've got everything that everybody wants, right? And I'm not saying you have everything in the world. Your life's perfect. I'm just saying that you are a wealthy man. You have power. You have visibility. How do you invest those things? The responsibility of having those things, how do you invest them to make a difference in the world?
0: Well, you know, there's a couple of things, right? First of all, I think when you say invest, you talk about investing responsibility and your influence or power, so to speak, I think that's by making choices that are going to make the world a better place. And by making choices that are going to lift up people. It's not about, there's nothing wrong with wanting a return, right? I'll give you an example. When the book about Elon Musk first came out, I guess it was about five, six, seven years ago, you know, that biography book, Mm -hmm. I think it says Tesla and SpaceX on the cover or something like that. Something like that. It's a book about Elon Musk. It was the first biography. When that came out, when I read that book. I like this philosophy. So I immediately, I said, you know what? I like the way this guy thinks. I like the things that this author is saying about him. I'm going to go out and invest in Tesla. Good call. <laughs> but I didn't invest in Tesla because, Ooh, I got a, a itchy trigger finger for money. And re- I said, you know what? I believe in this guy. Yeah. I'm going to put money in this. Right. But remember, you know, and I got that thinking about Warren Buffett when he says, look at management, right? What do you think of the management? How do you, do you believe in them, etc. Now, obviously I don't know him personally, but, I like this book's take on him. So I said, you know what? Let's do that. I didn't know him personally then, right? So I did it. There you go.
1: Yeah, nine years ago, I test drove a Porsche 911. I thought, well, this is cool, but I don't need this car. Then I got in a Tesla and I drove it and I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever driven. And I want to be a part of the change they're trying to create in the country. And what I wish I would have done is instead of buying the car, buy the stock and just let it ride
0: yeah well you know that that comes with it you know, look, look you know what you live and learn but what I've learned to do is I've always kind of I'm very curious and so I pay attention you have to just pay attention in the military they call it seeing around corners right I'm on NCIS so you know I, you got to be able to try to see around corners a little bit so that's what I try to do so in terms of coming back to your question my point is that when you go with things with your spirit in that regard and when you go after things that you think are interesting and when you do things from the heart, you work with people that you like and trust and you kind of, it has a way of working itself out. Every year, you know, around Christmas time, I watch Christmas Carol. You never want to be Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to, you know, squeeze the nickel until the eagle screams, right? Like you just, you know, you just got to live a little bit. So that's kind of, you know, how it's been for me.
1: There's a lot that's been going on in America in the last year, and when you go to rock the bells, you see the culture is presented, and some of the literature and some of the commentary on what's happening politically and in society is presented there very subtly, as if to let the consumer say, oh, what is this? Let me find it. What would it mean to empower more black people economically in the United States, and how do we do that?
0: Look, I think there are a lot of ways to look at this conversation, Right. You got the Thomas Sowell school and you got the the Noam Chomsky school, right? It's all about the how you look at it. So for me, it's a combination of things. I think that being rational about the decisions that are made is an important piece. And that's really tough to do. So let me let me break it down in a way where I think the people can understand where I'm at with it. Look, I think that blacks definitely need to be empowered, but I think that Part of being empowered is empowering yourself, too. That doesn't mean that there are no flaws in the system because we know there are. And that doesn't mean that there's a little lag time, a little latency in the treatment of black people within the system. A few hundred years
1: latency. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know, you know, guys like Ben Shapiro, you know, they want to talk you off the ledge as soon as you bring up systemic racism. And it exists. All right. You know, whether you want to say it's in the form of a human being as opposed to an agency. OK. OK, Ben, I get it. You know what I'm saying? OK. But it still exists in some form. It has to be a side effect of all of those years. You can't enslave people for hundreds of years and think there's zero side effects because you ended slavery. That's like me strapping you to your bed for a year and a half and then taking the straps off and saying you're free now.
1: Go run a marathon.
0: Are you going to jump up and do a marathon? Yeah. When you hear people say that there's zero systemic, that's a problem. Now, the flip side of that is that you can't, I don't think it's wise to use that as an excuse to hold yourself back, to unintentionally hold yourself back because you, in the back of your mind, you know that that's kind of a, a thing that, that's out there, right? Like, I want people to be hungry. You know what I mean? But I, I was told a long time ago by a hustler. Actually, his name was Ronnie Bump. He was a big time you know, hustler in Queens. He told me, yo, I was in a park. I was a little kid, maybe 14, 15. He said, let me tell you something. When you come in a park, come like this. Don't come like this. In other words, make a contribution. Don't come looking for a handout. So what I would say is, even with everything that's going on, I think it's up to us to think about how we can make a contribution to our kids, to our family, to our community, learn more, be more, dream more, do more. You know what I'm saying? What I don't want to see happen is I don't want to, I don't want black people to make the mistake of demonizing all the whites or a certain segment of white society either. I don't think that that's the way to bring us together because everybody is different and everybody thinks about it different. There are a lot of schools of thought. Some people feel like if you give a person a fish, you're not really helping them. Right. Some people feel like if you teach them to fish, you're helping them. Some people think the guy's really starving and his ribs are touching. Maybe you should give him a fish and give him some sustenance and then teach him how to fish. So there's a lot of ways we can think about this thing. But, you know, ultimately, I think that for blacks to be more empowered in the country, you just have to. And for humans in general, you have to be more educated. You got to be more focused on your dreams, more focused on your goals. Then you go from there and you got to really just go after it. Does that make sense?
1: It makes complete sense. Absolutely. One last question because I know you got to go. And again, thank you so much for doing this. LL Cool J, how do you define success?
0: Success is setting your goal, whatever that may be, and achieving. Being pleased with that result, feeling good about those results, whatever they may be. And that's the other thing I would caution people. Don't live your life comparing yourself to other people. You know, everybody's not going to be Jeff Bezos. That's okay. Everybody's not going to be Steph Curry. That's okay. Be who you are. You know what I mean? Be the best version of yourself. That's success, right? Maximizing your potential, your personal potential, and then helping the others around you to do the same. I think that's success.
1: That's awesome. Great place to leave it. Thank you, Al Cool J, so much for joining us. We will send people to rockthebells.com. And thanks again for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Paul. One love, baby.
1: Well, that was pretty cool. I mean, how do you not love that guy? How do you not love somebody who has seen incredible success for 36 years and still wakes up every day ready to get after it? I dig his motivation. I dig his positivity and his commitment to whatever it is he's doing. I also love the gratitude he's showing for the pioneers of hip hop and the tribute he's paying them through his work at Rock the Bells. Don't forget, the link to Rock the Bells is in the show notes, and the manifestation in the form of music exists on Channel 43 on Sirius XM. Let's talk about some takeaways. I'm going to do these in the form of quotes I found from LL Cool J that the internet is attributed to him. I think they're pretty legitimate, but I always have to have a caveat. If you ever find a link on the internet, it's generally attributed to Abraham Lincoln. But not all of them are things that he said. Anyway, three takeaways in the form of quotes from LL Cool J. Everybody needs love. Only suckers are scared of love. Early in his career, LL was criticized by other more hardcore hip-hop artists for the ballads he had on his record, including I Need Love, which is kind of a smooth, slow jam. He comes back with this. He's like, what are you talking about? Who doesn't love love, right? Only suckers are scared of love. If you don't like love, it's because you feel like you don't deserve it. You feel like on some level you are not worthy of love. And he comes back with this. Love is the greatest show of strength you can manifest in life. Uh, It takes courage to have love sometimes. It takes courage to admit that you need love. I think we'd all be better off not being suckers and embracing the love when it comes our way. you think the world would have enough of silly love songs, but... Here I go again. That's Paul McCartney. That's not LL Cool J. All right. Secondly, the only thing that keeps us from our dreams is fear. This times a thousand times a thousand. Fear is the thing that keeps us from sitting back and saying, who could I be if I could live a life doing anything I ever wanted that was the best manifestation of who I'm supposed to be? What would that look like? Think about it. There used to be these posters on the wall at Facebook that said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And honestly, my answer to the question was, I think I'd go work someplace else. I didn't mean I wanted to go work at Twitter or Google. I meant I wanted to go work on me. I wanted to go figure out how I could bring myself to this planet in the most authentic and real way. And I've been doing that for the last six years, and it's not easy it's hard. There's a lot of failure involved. And this fear of failure is the first thing you have to get over when you go down this road. No matter what the venture is, whether you're trying to learn a new instrument, a new language, start a business, you want to be a painter, you want to make video games, you know who I'm talking to right now. You got to get over this fear of failure. And guess what? The fear of failure isn't what you have to do to quit your job and go pursue that thing, no matter what it is. The fear of failure is the daily thing. It's every day when you wake up and you have this feeling in your gut like, oh shit, here goes another day. I'm not at the office drawing a paycheck. I don't have my insurance benefits. I don't know what's gonna happen. I might fail. I might not be successful. I might look foolish. And that is an ongoing basis. When you embrace your dreams, fear is your companion and you have to embrace it. You have to extend the love that we're talking about an item number one to that fear. You have to embrace your fear and know that it's a good thing, that that fear exists because you are doing what you were meant to do. Number three, dreams don't have deadlines. Dude, I wish they did. I wish they did on some level, either to start them, like you have to start it by a certain period of time, or that, you know, if you don't achieve it right away, you can quit, you know? On some level, that would be easier. It'd be an out, but that's not how it works, right? This week on Medium, I'm posting an essay. I have this Medium page. There's a link to it in the show notes also where I write about success. This week's is all about the 10,000 hour rule. You know, we talk about the 10,000 hour rule as if I'm gonna put 10,000 hours into whatever this craft is that I wanna be good at. And then success will find me. The world will think I'm splendid at whatever it is that I wanna do, but that's not how it works. See, the thing is, you can't find out how good you are without putting in the 10,000 hours but you can put in the 10,000 hours and still suck. You might even get very good, but that doesn't mean that the world will necessarily notice or appreciate what you're bringing to the table. And that's scary. And so you got to do it for the right reasons. Like LL said, he wasn't doing it for the money. He was doing it because his voice needed to be heard. There's something inside of you that needs to get out. Nurture that, water that, fertilize it with fear, fertilize it with love, and you will find something special in and of yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of this mission to explore the connection between money and happiness. It is my privilege to be there with you on this journey. I am grateful to many people along the way, especially to Mr. Mike Carano, who is the guy who tricked me, I mean, motivated me into making this podcast in the first place. Mike, I love you, buddy. You're my friend. I'm glad to say that all these years after working in LA, we're working together more closely than ever before. Do what you do. Make me sound smart.